Hello, and welcome back to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Chris Yeh, but I am joined today by a couple of special guests. This is the latest in the series of Harvard Business School Class of 2000 Reunion Podcast episodes, which means I am joined by both my partner in crime, Lindsay Mead, as well as our friend, Anthony Marino, who it turns out was a college classmate of Lindsay. So I really want you guys to go into that. <laughs> He was one year ahead of me, so we were classmates, but we were in the same eating club, and we do go way back. Yeah, and Lindsay, well, tell Lindsay me was about like it. the it girl. Lindsay was the it girl. That's oh, all I'm please. Say. I don't think that's true. <laughs> Lindsay was the quiet nerd. <laughs> but that's what made her the it girl. She was the quiet, irresistible nerd. I mean, it doesn't get any uh, yeah, better right. than that. <laughs> well... Thank you. I will say that one of my, you know how when you started HBS, they make such a big deal about how the sections are these carefully crafted microcosms of the class. And they're this, like, you know, they spent all this time figuring out. So then I show up at section and two people, our eating club had like 50 people a year in it, our friends, and it was tiny. And two people who have been in my eating club with me, all three of us were in the same section, Anthony and me and Anna Klobner. And I'm just like, I think this is an Excel sheet shuffle. Like, I don't think they're spending all this time very carefully uh, whatever it was, I, I was delighted to see it. But it, I, I, it was I would a, say that, yeah, it was a little ridiculous. And we all looked at each other and we're like, "Hey, <laughs> you again?" We're, yeah. we're like, "Wait a minute, we came here to like meet new people. Like you just right. like reduced. You, I just you're like a minus three opportunity in my section now totally. because I know you. It's like so you took funny. up a slot." Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, to disappoint in that past. Sorry, Chris. You better get a, You better get control of this thing. Oh, no, there's no need for control. People love the interaction. <laughs> so, but Lindsay, oh, perhaps uh, well, to actually do take control, perhaps what you should do is you should talk a little bit about how you guys met each other again through the eating club. And now that we've heard how irresistible you were, I want to hear about Anthony Marino, college student, big man on campus. Definite stud, BMOC for sure. Kind of a little bit intimidating to me the year younger because he was so confident and like just you always seemed to know exactly what you were doing and who you were doing it with and had like a very solid group of friends and so I was very intimidated by you. Oh wow, yeah, I I um <laughs> I, I, I I loved college. It's it was such a such a disappointment that that uh, we couldn't go back. You know, this year this was uh, our yeah, it was sorry, supposed to be his twenty fifth reunion. Yeah, this yeah. is going to be my twenty fifth and. Um, Look, it's a, it's a relatively small sacrifice in the scheme of sacrifices going on in the world right now. But um, it was a great place, and we'll have to figure out. You know, I don't think I don't think a Zoom, you know, a Zoom union or whatever they're calling it is going to quite uh, cut it. But um, we'll get back there one day. Well, hopefully, you can do uh, instead of a blackjack reunion like we're doing for our Harvard Business School twentieth reunion on the twenty first year. Maybe you can do a marathon reunion where instead of twenty five, it's twenty six. Yeah. yeah, and I think, and then you'll be with, uh, it's my 25th next year, so our two classes would be together, but I've heard is the plan, which I think would be fun. Yeah, that'd be great. See, there's a silver lining after all. <laughs> so I'm picturing this eating club, about 50 people. I'm picturing Anthony Marino. He's the basically the George Clooney of the eating club. And, oh, yeah, for sure. You know, Were you an officer, what? Anthony? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Just, I was just a civilian. Yeah, me too. And so, like, how? What is it like being in this eating club together? Like, how often would you 
you see each other. Tell me more about. I mean, we ate all three meals a day at the same place, and it was like I said, max hundred people. So I mean, I think I saw you probably almost every day of my two years that we overlapped. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's like your, you know, it's like your your dining hall, and it's your it's your kind of like you know, your it's like your homeroom, you know, except it's yeah. a homeroom that has a cafeteria in it and um and, and right. alcohol. So and, uh, so it's a really good homeroom. Um, yeah. And yeah, and yeah, I think, wait, Lindsay, am I remembering right that you were kind of an early riser? Were you there? Like, you, I noticed that you said memory, three meals a day. Always. Yeah. yeah, I was always, I have been an early riser. My, no, I'm earlier now that I'm agent, but I used to get up and run at like 7.30, which, you know, is like the crack of dawn. And I would always have, for college, now it's like lunchtime. And I would always have um, 9 a.m. classes, which nobody would ever take because they were so early. And I would be like, you know, I'd run, go to Ivy, have breakfast, go to class, and then like people would be rolling out of bed. I remember that because I'm, I'm the same way. I'm up early and I'm up early now, which is, which is a problem from a, um, a DNA perspective because my kids are also up oh, early they have- and that, oh, they've got the up early gene, which is awful. And they've got that mutated version of the up early gene where you, they can go to bed at two in the morning, but they still wake up at six. It doesn't matter oh, when they go to bed, brutal. they wake up at right. the same time. They're just grumpier. So, um, but yeah, I remember seeing you, uh, in there for breakfast and, um, there's, there's like something wonderful about those early calm, peaceful times of the day, even, you know, even back in college when we knew how valuable that is. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, well, Chris, do you want me to kick off or should we start with just Anthony talking a little bit about what he's doing now? Exactly. So I think what we'd love to hear, what we often do is just a little bit about where you grew up because that's something that people don't always get to hear. And what are the things that basically make Anthony, Anthony, and then what you're doing now because people want to catch up, understand what's happening in your life. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I grew up in, in Northern New Jersey uh, in, a, in a town called Pinebrook, which is kind of like, um, you know, when you're from New Jersey, you talk about kind of like what county you're in. People say it's, it's what exit, but it really isn't what exit. It's what county you're in. So we were we were Morris County and uh, grew up there. And then uh, in my teens, we moved to a town called Cedar Grove, which is in Essex County. And uh, come, I come from a very kind of an old-fashioned Italian American family. You know, I I have an um, older brother and an older sister. But you know, in an old-fashioned, what does it mean to be to be from an old-fashioned Italian American family? It means that on Sundays your grandfather pulls into the driveway with his big Cadillac. He pops open the trunk and it's filled with food. Like it's filled with bags, not just, not just like a few grocery bags. It's filled with like industrial size burlap bags filled with cantaloupes, like dozens of cantaloupes. (laughs) And and why, why is that, you know, why why am I pointing that out? Because when you come from like an old fashioned Italian American family, you're, your grandparents and great grandparents who came from Italy still remember the time when they didn't have food. So when they got it, they loaded up on it, you know, and when they could get a car, they didn't just get a car, they got a Cadillac and they filled it with food. And so um, it was a boisterous family, a fun family, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of time with family. The, the, the negative side to that is when you're, when you're come from an Italian family and you're not with your family, you're, you're like excommunicated. So, 
the guilt and pain that you suffer from not spending every living moment with your family is the um, is the other it's the other edge that night, you know. Um, but uh, it was always a lot of fun. It was always very loud, and uh, so you kind of had to learn to uh, how to survive and be heard. Yeah. So they they thought of you, yeah. Anthony, you as for the, HBS. As, <laughs> Well, well, Anthony's family—he was the quiet one. We're like, oh, Anthony's the shy, quiet one. Yeah, I was the—I was the youngest. I was the little guy, you know. So, I really had to uh, to kind of fight my way uh, to the table. But no, it was—it was. It was um, we had a, we had a lot of fun, uh, a lot of fun growing up. But I learned learned a lot from uh, from my parents. And then after you left, after you graduated from Princeton, you're headed out into the world. What brought you to HBS? What was the pathway that got you all up to Soldier Field? It, it was really unexpected. So I never, ever had intentions or plans or dreams of going to graduate school or, or business school. It just, wasn't, um, it just wasn't something I ever thought about. And then, um, and then a couple unexpected things happened. I heard from a Princeton classmate who, had, who was going to HBS and... Um, and she invited me up to like visit and check out the campus. And I kind of went up there thinking, oh, this is gonna be, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna meet these sharky, obnoxious uh, HBS people. But I, but I was kind of, you know, so I kind of went up there with that, with that attitude. But then I sat in on a couple classes and it's kind of like what Lindsay said, it felt a lot like, you know, it felt like a lot like the Sunday dinner table. It was boisterous, <laughs> it was loud. It was honest, it was direct, it was you know, filled with opinions and strong arguments, some, some lacking content, but presented with confidence. So that, that made up for the mm -hmm. lack of content. Um, and so I kind of loved it. I was like, this feels like a place with lots of different people who are really excited to be here, who come from lots of different backgrounds. And I was like, oh my God, can I, do I even think I could get in here? And so that kicked off like a process for me where, where all of a sudden I went from being like a business school is the last thing that is, is what I'm about to being like, Hey, this is what I'm all about. And I, it's like the number one thing I want to, I want to do next. Now it wasn't like before business school, you know, you're working at a convent or something like that. You were still in the world of business, right? It was not, they would not let, I tried to work at a convent, but they wouldn't, I didn't have some of the major qualifications <laughs> needed. Although I am Catholic, there were other things that ruled me out. But no, I'd been, before business school, I worked at Bell Labs for, uh, gosh, three, four years. And, um, you know, working with sort of very technical teams, building um, telecommunications software products. So yeah, I'd had a, I had a, a little bit of a, some business training. But not, but not nearly, but I really didn't know anything. Were you on that Nobel Prize track or you, you got diverted over to business? Uh, what was that like? You mean, how did I go from being sort of in a, in a Bell Lab sort of science-y technical environment to business? Yeah. You know, I, I think it was um, when I figured out that business wasn't, uh, wasn't defined as narrowly as I had thought. You know, for me, mm -hmm. when I visited HBS, it, it's and I looked around and I talked to the people. It was a bit more like an environment that wasn't about accounting and investment banking and management consulting, but it was an environment that was about like curiosity, passion, um, 
so, you know, a fair amount of ambition, but also like a real openness for growth, you know, the growth mindset kind of thing. And so that like just really fired me up. And so, so business for me became just this platform where you could plant any seed. It could be a seed about, you know, um, about, about literature or art, or it could be about technology and science. It was just um, a kind of way to get started and a way to kind of structure your thinking in a way where you could day after day make just a little more progress to get closer and closer to, you know, whatever outcome you were aiming for. I like that. It's something that the, the world being more broadly defined and therefore maybe have a place that would feel like home to you. The business world, I mean. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah. when I, when I worked at Bell Labs, I had an amazing uh, boss who was, you know, an example of this. He, um, before he was, before he was the CEO of, um, of the organization, he ran DARPA for like 20 years and he was a White House fellow and he had been the CTO of Texas Instruments. And then um, he invented the liquid crystal display when he was at Sarnoff Labs. So he was like this combination of like business, government, science and he was my first boss out of college and he was he he for me was sort of like this example that um you know life is multidisciplinary and and mm -hmm. you can and you can have a career you can you can be a reader and love to read and write and, and sit down and think but you can also be a, you know sort of a uh, a business person too and you can find you know, inspiration when you need it in those different passions. So he, for me, was like a, a real role model that, that none of that was mutually exclusive. And when I went to HBS, it just felt like a place where I could maybe learn how to do that, you know, learn from others who were, who, who were doing it. I would go further and not to put words in your mouth, but I think that in some ways those things are not mutually exclusive, but even more, they, they benefit each other like having more than one it can result in a better outcome for all is my view obviously i'm totally biased but <laughs> that's what yeah. i think yeah so well, i don't think there's any problem cool. with the bias considering that this is a harvard business school class of 2000 podcast <laughs> i doubt many people from our class are tuning in saying you know what i really hate harvard business school that's why i'm going to listen to this <laughs> no but i mean being more than just a simple business person i think is what anthony's saying like that there's value in having a lot of different those things can coexist. You can love to read or write. You can be whatever. I think I think that's what I heard you say. Yeah, and I think some of the yeah. greatest like entrepreneurs and business people, um, you know, are examples of that. At least that that first boss I had was for me. And mm -hmm. you know, I'm you know c coming from just to take it a little bit full circle, like coming from a you know a, a family where my dad had his own small business and started his own business. You know, he he was working on. He was very focused on feeding us and paying the bills. So he was, mm -hmm. he, he, as my initial role model was anything but multidisciplinary. He was like, Hey, I got, I got shit to do. Like I, I, I gotta, you know, I gotta get out of the house at four 30 in the morning and paint houses or, you know, organize people on the, on a job site or whatever, whatever it was. And so mm -hmm. he was, he was like, it was, it was survival, you know? And so that was one side of the equation. And then again, my, that first boss, George was, um, was a, was a different, you know, manifestation and um, view on business and how you can, you know, kind of achieve your goals and dreams. And so that I was, I was always kind of uh, learning from both sides. Yeah, it's great. And so why don't you just, uh, I just want to be mindful of the time. Why don't you tell us what you're doing now? 
Yeah, so so I'm the president of a company called Thread Up, um, and we're the um, the largest fashion resale marketplace. So um, so if you go, um, well, if you're like most people, you have clothing in your closet that you don't wear. In fact, probably half of it you don't wear. And what Thread Up um, uh, pioneered was a way to make it super easy for you to to send that clothing to us that you're no longer wearing so that we can resell it. And then we, um, in so doing, create a very um, a large scale and thriving marketplace where people who want to buy the brands they love can do it at 90% off every day, all day. And we list, you know, tens of thousands of new items every day. So we built, a, uh, you know, a marketplace that could solve two really important problems, help you get rid of the things you don't use anymore. Uh, and feel good about it, and then help people who want to uh, buy great things do it and save money, but also, uh, you know, not contribute to to fashion waste in the process. That's great. Is there? Are you? Were you originally? Did you have a different title? Are you newly president? So I've been president, I think, for the past two and a half, almost three years, and I joined the company in 2013 as chief marketing officer. Okay, got it. Well, congrats. Yeah. Thanks. I think it's also important to let people know if they're looking for thread up, it's not spelled the normal way because in Silicon Valley, we can never spell anything normally. So Anthony, okay. give them the website URL. Thank you, Chris. It's T-H-R-E-D-U-P.com. So it's thread without the A, threadup.com. So wait, so Linz, have you ever, wait, Linz, yeah. have you ever used thread up, either bought anything from us or sent anything to us? I have not. I would like oh to. I'm okay. just sitting here embarrassed that I haven't. It's I will. well, you can order a cleanout bag for free, and then we send you money for the things you send us. So there really isn't any reason. And I, something, and I, 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 I'm, I'd be shocked if you're wearing everything in your closet or if your kids. Oh, I'm definitely not. And actually, one thing I've been doing in the last nine freaking weeks is yeah, uh, putting. I mean, my entire living room is just a. I can't even see the floor because it's bags for Goodwill. Um, so, ah, so you go to Goodwill. All right. Well, that's yeah, but, but, but why send them no, to Goodwill? I mean, send yeah, them to no, Thread Yeah, no, I should. I, send, I will order a, a clean out bag. Send them the Thread Up so I can buy my grandkids lots of, lots of cantaloupes in burlap bags in the back you of my bet. car. <laughs> I did want to return to, that's a lot of cantaloupes, but I, we may not have time <laughs> That doesn't that. matter. Wait, let me, uh, sometime I'll tell you the story when he showed up with like a hundred pomegranates. We're like, Grant, what are we going to do with a hundred pomegranates? He's like, and he was like, "These are I got an amazing deal on these pomegranates." We're like, "Yeah, but there's a hundred pomegranates." <laughs> Seriously, you're like, "There's still a hundred of them." Doesn't yeah. matter. It's just it's just abundance. It was abundance. Yeah. Well, let's get started. So, one of the questions, um, <clears throat> the first question is, tell us about a moment, a specific memory you have that's very vivid from HBS. Ooh. Uh, well, there's two that like immediately come to mind. One is just yeah. was getting in, you know, mm -hmm. so I remember the emotional rush of getting that news and, um, and being really, really excited and happy. Um, <laughs> the second one that comes immediately to mind, oh, wow, that's, this is funny, is, so <laughs> I can't remember why, but when I went, when I started my first school year, I had to take a test at HBS. I don't know, remember why. Maybe it was like an accounting test or it was some kind of test that they were like, oh, you need to take this. And 
so I went to the classroom building, which at the time it was called Aldrich, right? Is it still called that? Yep. Or, and, they, have all um, their, they still have that. They have another building too. Yeah, there's another one. So I, I went, you know, to the big, the big bowl and, and Aldrich to take my test and walked in. There were like a hundred other people, you know, about to take the test. And we were all, I don't know if you remember, but you know, those, those seats are kind of like tight together and there was like one or two seats yeah. available. And I had to like slip behind people to get, you know, across five different seats and get into the middle of the row. Cause the only seat available was in the middle of the row. And, and a very stern professor walked in and said, okay, you know, we're going to take this test. Uh, you have uh, 45 minutes. Um, and, you know, just like context, when you get to HBS, like the last thing you want to do is like fail out on the first day. Like you, you want to stay there. Like you, you hear stories about people, quote unquote, hitting the screen and failing out and not doing well. And you're just like, oh my God, please don't make me be the admissions mistake. You know? So I walk into this yeah, room totally. with a hundred people. It's, it's September in Boston. It's 500 degrees outside. I'm squeezed in between these two people. The professor walks in, who was all business, lays down the law. I look down at the test and I literally start to like get dizzy and I start to sweat and I'm like, you know, what's happening? And I like start to try to like do the work. And then I'm looking around the room and I see other people shuffling and flipping pages and moving through the test. And I literally had a full on panic attack. I was like, that, that, I was like totally like, and wow. you know, it, I think it was, I think it was the first I've, I've ever had. So I didn't even know what was happening. I was like, did I eat bad, you know, tuna for lunch or something? And so I like walked out of the room and I like splashed water on my face uh, and I got back to it and I finished the test and it went fine. But I'll tell you, I remember the first 10 minutes <laughs> that test and it was tough. It was tough, but um, wow. what a memory. Yeah, so the, the yeah. kind of the, the ecstasy of getting in and then the agony of the fear of failing out <laughs> on my first day. <laughs> but you know, like, I, it's kind of cool though when you think about it, because I'm like, all right, I'm like, I didn't throw up, that's good. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I got through it. So, but yeah, that's, that's my first, those are my first two memories. That's great. I think it's hard for anyone to picture Anthony Marino lacking confidence in anything. So thank you for sharing a, a very <laughs> vulnerable moment. I mean, I would never in a million years have occurred to me that you would ever feel that way. Yeah, there you go. So second question, what's the first concert you attended with the proviso? It's not one that your boy, big boisterous Italian family dragged you to, but one that you selected yourself. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I went to many Frank Sinatra events where I was dragged, but but Billy, <laughs> it was Billy Joel, and it was Hi. with my my high school girlfriend, and it was awesome. It was I think we had to drive somewhere out on um, on Long Island, so it was even it was even better, you know, because it was like in his home. Like he he always performs at Madison Square Garden, but this was like in a smaller venue that I just can't remember, but it was fantastic. That's great. Huh. The piano man. Um, yeah. Yeah. What has been the biggest surprise about your life post HBS? You know, I think the biggest surprise is um, is probably how how um, that I thought I would at every point along the way. I think I thought I would like know more than I actually did. Meaning, uh, like you're, I'm still like. I'm still learning how to, how to navigate things, you know, like for example, yeah. 
I'm still learning what times of day I'm most effective. I'm still learning when to, when to stop. Uh, I'm still learning when to be like, you know, I'm not going to make that decision in this moment or in this day. I'm going to save that decision for tomorrow. And it just amazes me how, um, how much more there is to learn. And um, so that's been a pretty big surprise because when you're young, you sort of think that you're going to get like, get 85% of what you need to know by the time you're like 35. And mm -hmm. it's just for me, uh, you know, for me, it really hasn't been that way. I feel like the, the greatest years of learning have been like the last five to 10. Right. In Doesn't that imply way. that most of us probably are all walking around feeling like we don't know what's going on, right? It's a little <laughs> bit reassuring, I think. I, I yeah. can probably relate to that. Yeah. I really feel that way. And I feel like, um, and I thought, I always thought of myself, like I had a, like my mother was kind of like a, um, um, a Shirley MacLaine type. You know, she was like really in touch with uh, her chakras, her universe, her soul. She's a big mm -hmm. reader. You know, so growing up with a, with a mom who was kind of like very spiritual, you know, I always, I always felt like I was, a, you know, pretty self-aware, but unbelievable. You know, it wasn't until I hit my like mid forties where I was like, Ooh, I'm really learning some stuff now. You know, <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm really like, I, I'm, I'm having, um, I'm like looking at myself a week ago being like, what the heck, what was I thinking? You know? And, but that, that has also made things a lot more fun and energizing. And it also means you can go easy on yourself because it means, well, yeah, of course I screwed up today, but tomorrow I won't do that again. You know, so it's, yeah, yeah. it has this way of refilling the tank in a, in a very, like you might think that when the learning curve gets steeper, uh, you, you might lose confidence or faith or enthusiasm, but it's, for me, it's the opposite. It's sort of like, well, whatever, what happened yesterday doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I like that. I think it's inspiring and also shows that admirable self-awareness. And again, I, personally, I'd be like, if we'd already figured it out at age 35 and then it's just another 40, 50, 60 years of running out the clock, it doesn't sound so appealing. It doesn't. But you know what? But remember like what 2000 was like, so tw right, 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Some quick math. 2000 years ago or 2000 years ago, the year 2000, you know, it was like the dot-com thing. Like we had, I, I graduated from HBS in 2000. And it was like this bizarre scenario where you started to see all these people have like incredible success. And you were like, whoa, you were like, how yeah. did that happen? So it sort of like, it like moved the bar and it also made you really force yourself to ask like, what you care about. You're like, is that what I want? And it was like the dot-com burst, the bubble burst. And then the, and so I felt like that, like sort of throws off the calibration a little because you expect that you're supposed to be doing these things now because you hear about the 10 successes, you don't hear about the, the million failures, you know, but the, so the exception starts to become the rule and you start to do the terrible thing that we all do, which is compare yourself to others. And so it takes you a little while to be like, wait a minute, um, you know, I'm on my own path and you gotta like, you gotta, um, you gotta take it a day at a time. And from the profound to the ridiculous, <laughs> Anthony, what comic book, superpower do you wish you had oh definitely to fly yeah that's like um that i mean 
I mean, I, I've come, I came close so many times to jumping out a window when I was a kid because I would put on my Superman cape and there was like a little latch that got in the way. Um, but yeah, to fly for sure. I think it would be even more helpful these days because now you don't have to worry about going through TSA. You don't have to worry about social distancing on the plane. You're just flying by yourself. That would be great. Big yeah, improvement. Great. Yeah, it's true. Um, is there, I actually don't have any memories of this, so you can tell us if you don't, but are there, what is the, the most memorable cold call that you remember being present for? It doesn't have to have been of you, but in, you know, during school. Oh, I got one. <laughs> I'm hoping I'll remember this now. This is going to be good. Oh man, this is like, I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. This is so painful. This is so painful. So one of my best friends who was in my study group, I'm not going to use names, got cold called. And he was dying. He was dying. He, it, it was, he wasn't. And so for some awful reason, and he was like, shuffling around his papers and he for some reason i felt like it would be okay if i got out of my chair and brought him the page of notes i knew he was looking for wow you thought so that was I, a good got, idea. I got out of my chair i walked across the whole sky deck from one to the other and when i walked up to him and put the piece of paper like sort of like gently in front of him he looked at me like he was so upset that I did that. And I felt awful because I was like, oh shit. Like I tried to, I tried to help him. And I think he feels like I just made the whole thing worse. And I just, so I remember that cold call and I remember him being pretty upset at me. We, we, he got over it and I got over it and we, we kissed and hugged and made up. But I remember mm -hmm. that I can feel the pain in my stomach right now. And I felt, on the one hand, that initial urge to be helpful and that I thought it would be a good thing. And then that like, then that stomach churning pain when I saw that he did not want me to do that. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Was that, in, was that in first year? Was that there? It was, you must, yeah, it, you must have been there. Yeah. It was first year. Well, I don't yeah. remember for what it's worth. Then there was also the other time, wait a minute. There was another time too, when we were talking about the auto industry and mm -hmm. I think I got cold called and I was making the point that the auto industry was a labor intensive industry. And I got shouted down because they were like, the auto industry isn't labor intensive. Those factories are, are like, are totally automated. And I was like, and literally the, literally the whole section just like, like, like tackled me to the ground. And I was like, but wait a minute. I was like, it is a very labor intensive industry. Wow. Yeah, I would have gone with labor intensive too, but Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. Well, maybe it, maybe seems, it seems to me if they have labor unions, there has to be some labor involved. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good way to think about it. It's true. Anyway, yes, those are a couple that come to mind. There was yeah. a lot of good there's a lot of good ones too. Like oh man, getting cold called by Nitten and and oh. getting and nailing it. Oh, he was he 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 brought the he brought the rigor of, mm -hmm. of nanoscience and organic chemistry to, to organizational leadership. And so when, mm -hmm. when Nitten would, would call, cold call you and you would, hit, you would hit it, you felt like, you're like, all's going to be good in life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be just fine. I'm gonna be just fine, to be clear yeah. for our listeners, you're talking about Dean of Harvard Business School, current Dean of Harvard Business School, Nitten Noria. 
That's right. Yes, he was our lead teacher. He was, he was, he was our lead great. teacher, and he, and he was great. This isn't just, this isn't like post, you know. Um, we're not, know. yeah, like we all, we would, I would have said this if he was, you never Ex had no idea who he was. Exactly. Yeah. We're not romanticizing. This, the, we, we loved um, uh, being his, his students. So, Anthony, what is your favorite book? Many people cheat and give more than one, but it's entirely up to you how many to give. Um... Gosh, um, you know, I, I read a book about six months ago called The, um, the Overstory. Mm -hmm. um, Lindsay, have you heard of it? I've read it. It's my favorite book of last year. Okay, so there you go. So, um, so The Overstory, um, it's a novel and it's about, it's by a guy by the name of Richard Powers. And gosh, how do you even describe it, Lindsay? It's, it's basically a, a book about trees. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's a book about how um, how there is a world around us, um, underground, over our heads, in the air, that is that is powered by these organisms that have like in, incredible sort of scientific qualities that like that sort of transcend what you would ever think, it, and it's and it's real. It's it's all real. It's it's in the book and. Um, it is. I, I could book club for. You could do a course on the overstory. Yeah, you do a I, I, bet you level I mean, course. I think people will write their thesis on the overstory for sure. I agree. Yeah. With you. I'm gonna have to you pick that one up. I, I feel bad. I haven't mm -hmm. read it yet. I will also say that one of the things that we plan to do is to go back over all these interviews and pull out the book recommendations because we've gotten so many good ones. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Do you read Anthony? Just a quick aside. Do you read mostly fiction, mostly nonfiction, or so, a range? Yeah, so I read a lot of um, nonfiction, but I love thrillers. Yep, um, me too. Like, really, really love them. So right now, I'm just burning my way through "I Am Pilgrim" mm -hmm. by Terry Hayes, which I know it's mm -hmm. not a new, not a new book, but it's it's probably the best thriller I've ever read. I've read all of Harlan Coben stuff, which is like comic book thriller stuff, but yeah. Um, but Terry Hayes, and this is the only book he ever wrote. This is like an it's such an incredible book. Um, I've never read it. I should do that. Yeah. And there's another book I just finished that you'll really like called You'll Never Forget Your First. Okay. And, but it's not what you think. It's a, it's a biography. Um, it's an, it's a biography of, of George Washington. There have been gajillion biographies written about our first president, but this mm -hmm. was like one of the only ones written by a woman and mm -hmm. written by um, somebody who, who she brings like a totally different perspective and that she she's identified all of the, the false statements that have been made about Washington and his wife and their family over time. And she goes back through the research and tells the story with, with her unique perspective. And she does it with humor and, and just heart, like very direct facts. And it's fantastic. Uh, it's fantastic. You'll what? never forget your first, it's called. It's a good one. Awesome. Um, okay, here's another one that I couldn't do because you may, I don't know if you can, remember this, but I didn't spend a lot of time paying attention in business school, which is possibly why I don't remember anything, but name one case that you remember and why. Oh, I, I remember, um, I think it's, it was called Dory Dory. It was about, uh, was that the one about, about socks, the sock factory? Yes, that's the one. I remember Dory Dory. Um, and why do I remember that? Because I just really, I felt like that was, I think it's like a classic 
you know, HBS case that really looks at a business like from lots of different dimensions. And so the, the dots start to connect for you. And then I don't remember a specific case, but I remember in Ben Estes large scale finance class, which I think was year two, you would do these cases on like, how does a, how does a nuclear power plant being built in uh, Kenya get financed? And, and when you try to like build out the model for that plant, how do you do that? And it was, it was such a, it was such Greek to me, but I took the class because it was second year. You can't fail out anymore. I'm like, well, I'm going to take something where I just have no frick. I have no idea, but I was just so fascinated. I'm like, how do these big things get built? Who pays for it? And how does, and so that class was just, there were some people who are really brilliant at them. Brilliant. And I wasn't one of them, but I remember how it was all just totally fresh and new and, and really fun to learn it. That's great. Very cool. So let me ask you this question. Again, it's something where sometimes people give more than one answer, but certainly one answer is sufficient. Name a person, living or dead, that you admire and why. Well, I talked a little bit about my, um, you know, my first boss. His name is George Heilmeyer. He's, he, he died a few years ago. Uh, he just amazing integrity, amazing intelligence, uh, had that ability to remove himself from the, the pressures of the, of the, of the situation and think about things and make decisions like dispassionately, not heart, not heartlessly dispassionately, you know, there's a difference and, mm -hmm. and, um, and also just how can you how can you not admire someone who who spent time with you when you were young in your career and didn't know anything yet for some reason he you know he was running a big company and he was like sure I'll meet with you you know once a week for an hour you know so you're just like so he was I admire him a lot and he and he was a he was a um he was a statesman he was a he was a business person he was a scientist um, so he he was pretty much the, the whole package um Great. i think I'll, I'll pause on that one i think that's i think that's yeah, a pretty good one. Good one. Oh no i think that's fantastic and by the way he must have seen something in you to devote that much time to you so that's also a statement on his judgment well yeah. one way or the other yeah <laughs> a positive statement <laughs> on his judgment positive so anthony our last question which i chris and i started this or started talking about this and coming up with our questions before covid became such a substantial part of our world. And so this question feels poignant to me now, um, but uh, I still am interested. Where is one place in the world that you haven't been that you most want to go? Oh, I, so I'm almost ashamed to say it. I've never been like anywhere in Asia ever. Um, so uh, Asia, <laughs> writ, okay. Asia, it's a big, it's a big, big answer. Writ large. Yeah. yeah. So um, definitely, definitely. And on the other extreme of places I've been a hundred times and still want to go, I definitely want to go back to, uh, to Italy and take my kids around and eat a lot. And, uh, but it'll be a while. Cantaloupes for everyone. Right, Chris? <laughs> Cantaloupes for yours, everyone. Chris? Oh, sorry. Yes. No, Italy is one yeah. of the places I want to go. And, uh, you know, what we should do therefore is arrange for our families to go together yeah. Because yeah. Anthony would be a perfect guide. Oh, I can. Oh, just leave it. Just leave it to me. You, you will yeah. have a very fine time. <laughs> that I'm pretty and we'll, sure of. And we will discuss Dante, you know, in the, 
in the stud in the in the oak in the chestnut paneled study that he uh, wrote uh, his works. You know, we'll we'll do something like that, and we'll bring a few cannolis and a bottle of Countium with us. Oh, sounds, sounds wonderful. Well, awesome. Anthony, thank you so much. We know that your job keeps you very busy, especially now that Lindsay's going to be sending you all those bags of clothes. <laughs> Keep sending them in. I we appreciate will. we appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule. Is there anything else you'd like to let people know? We already let them know about ThreadUp. Is there anything else that people should know, places they can find you online, ways they can follow your activity and keep getting more of the Anthony S. Marino story? Yeah, you can just e email me anytime. I'm Anthony at ThreadUp. And um, no, it's, it's so fun to talk to you guys. It's so great to, to reconnect with old friends and old memories. And especially at a time like this when we all need we all need fuel and inspiration wherever we can find it. So thanks for, thanks for making this uh, such a pleasure. Well, thank you for joining us. It was great to hear your voice. I, I can't even, I, I think that Chris, we had thought about doing this before the reading was canceled and it has mean so much more to me, even in the environment where talking to people uh, feels really kind of, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. It's like a bomb or it's, it's you know, sustenance. So thank you. Yes, each of these interviews is really one of the highlights of the day or the week. And I would use a metaphor that I've used in the past to describe some other things, that these are trying times and there are times we just need to fill up the tank of the soul. And this is a great way to fill up that tank. Amen. Thank you so much, Anthony. And we'll be looking forward to seeing you in person someday at our Blackjack reunion and you two can get together at your marathon reunion. Sounds great. Thanks guys.